0: All right, I'm here with my buddy Ned and hunting partner from this Kodiak trip as well as last year's Alaska trip and um, yeah, we just thought it'd be a good idea to do a little after action report and kind of um, logistics and gear podcast as related to Kodiak because I know a lot of people have questions about it and um, you know, we found actually that you can do this pretty uh, you know pretty affordably um it's a very cool alpine hunt it's not for everybody it is physically demanding but um and we'll get into that but um it's definitely doable so hopefully if it's something you want to do and you have a lot of uh you know unanswered questions this podcast will help you out um so yeah let's just jump into it how you doing buddy
1: doing great man yeah, yeah. just uh trying to get a lot of work done <laughs> back Here to the, the real world weeks yeah uh <laughs> I'm sure it's the same on your end with how busy a fall you got lined up. Yeah,
0: man. I'm leaving on Tuesday for New Mexico, so I've been trying to get stuff done with my, you know, my regular job, my real job or whatever. Um, get stuff lined up and then, you know, dumping gear, you know, repacking, figuring out camera stuff, so it's and then trying to, you know, get as much time as possible with the kids. So, um, Son started school though so that means you know I have like you know probably a lar- like from 7am to 3pm of like guilt-free get stuff done time where he's at school so <laughs> that's good man but um so yeah let's just start from the beginning um cuz you flew with this air service before so just tell me like how I guess, how did you find, just real quick, how did you find Seahawk, and like what's it like booking with them, basically?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I kind of used one of my connections up there. Um, My buddy, Coley, who is the man, shout out, uh, (laughs) he's (laughs) active duty Coast Guard, and he was stationed up there for like six years, and I'm pretty sure I originally got Seahawk. I think he turned me on to him. Okay. Basically just asking around and you'll very quickly find that Roland, the pilot for Seahawk and one of the owners of the company is like the absolute grandmaster of all things. Yeah. He's been flying up there
0: for 40 years. years, He said,
1: yeah, I mean, he's got probably like more backcountry hours on the rock than like almost any pilot alive. I mean, there are a few guys out there who are really like legendary and he's certainly one of them. Nice, man. Um, So, yeah, I just kind of vetted the, you know, which service we were going to use that way, just figuring out who was like super highly recommended. They're like right at the top. And um, honestly, when I did it in 2019, I, I didn't really have a ton. That was only the third time that i'd flown in with a transporter yeah. in alaska um so relatively low sample size now that i've kind of entered the world of professional aviation i got like a little bit better idea what i'm talking about and yeah i can confidently say that you know see how are rolling they're they're awesome they're, yeah
0: so ned is a commercial pilot so he knows what he's talking about and um rolling is- that far <laughs> well, Roland's a really chill guy and very knowledgeable about the island. But like, um, you know, I know a lot of some of the air services that are flying caribou hunters out and stuff. Uh, some of the more reputable ones take like years to get in. Is the booking process similar with Kodiak, or is it pretty much you know call them, you know, relatively far in advance and you got a decent shot at getting booked on a good date?
1: Well, Kodiak is a little bit different than what you're talking about in the sense that Seahawk operates from a town, you can't right. say it really a city, but they operate from the town of Kodiak, which has infrastructure. So mm-hmm. they don't have to transport the fuel into the back country. There's a seaplane base right there. It's just one leg from Kodiak out to wherever you're going. So it simplifies the logistics of air travel a lot as compared to like flying into the North slope on a cub or yeah. something like that. Also they fly a beaver, which useful load of up to 1500 pounds. Yeah which is like many times what most super cubs are comfortable flying with. So bottom line is that flying out of Kodiak is much easier into the backcountry, and also not quite as expensive. Um, The downside is that getting to Kodiak itself is not cheap. I mean, it'll cost twice as much to get your commercial airline ticket to Kodiak as it would compared to, Anchorage or Fairbanks, a lot of the times, I mean, prices are changing so frequently now in the world, post-pandemic air travel. But basically, your commercial ticket to Kodiak is going to be more expensive. And then the backcountry flight in, generally not quite as crazy as some of those places flying Cubs that have to take like multiple trips and all that. Yeah. Also, to your point about booking, there are a few air services and they can turn more loads, uh, just coming straight from the seaplane base in Kodiak. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not one of those, like, they'll, they'll have space for next year if you book them now. Yeah. Uh, on not the, as ast- tight. Oh, sorry.
0: No, I'm saying it's not quite as competitive and tight as some of those, uh, up Northern air services.
1: Right. Uh, You definitely want to book well in advance, especially for the dates that are highly sought after, like the, you know, the periods during the rut in October, November, um, the prime time when these companies also will run bear viewing tours. So Mm -hmm. August gets competitive. Um, So like I booked this out eight months in advance.
0: Yeah. So definitely want to be on your game and be several months in advance, but not necessarily needing like multiple Advanced years lead time.
1: Sticking with a date that you want to be able to pick.
0: Yeah. I kind of, you kind of like glitched out there for a second, but um, I think I just basically recapped what you said while you're out. But um, so, yeah, I'm looking at my, um, my booking through Alaska air just for transparency. So you guys know, it was about eight hundred and twenty-five bucks to get to Kodiak commercial, and then what was the cost of our flight to the backcountry?
1: Uh, total cost in and out was like thirty-five hundred bucks.
0: For that's in and out.
1: Yeah, that's for the uh, for all three guys. Yeah, um, and
0: so that was at the twelve hundred pound weight limit there's like 800 pound a 1200 pound and then there's a next step up when each one costs more um and we were just over the line but split that up three ways and it's not that bad you'll pay that for what one way for one person on the north slope
1: yeah flying those cubs in where they have to bring the fuel into the back country and you know like maintain planes in the back country and everything it could be four grand for one person rather than 3500 bucks for the whole trip split really. Yeah.
0: So that's that's not that bad. And then um and then let's see. So once we got there, you know, you're gonna have a little bit of kind of um I don't know whether it be like prep time as well as kind of back end logistics time on either side. Um and Ned kind of handled all that for the for the group this time as well. So we stayed in a couple Airbnbs, which I know are a little bit competitive these days in a smaller town. And sometimes might not even be much more economical, um, but you have like some of the amenities, like the Airbnb we stayed at. We were kind of able to use like the guy's garage a little bit and stuff like that. I was able to dry my boots on a little heater they had. So, and then you got um, which service did you use for the uh, rental car?
1: I used Turo. Um, it's basically Airbnb for cars. People just rent out their you know personally yeah. owned vehicles. Uh, Alaska, since the border was shut down with COVID has had like a really critical shortage of rental yeah. cars. And basically I, so I did four different trips. I was up in Alaska all August. And really the only way that I was able to find like any sane car rental was through Toro. Yeah. Um, everything else was re- just out of reason completely.
0: Yeah. So Yeah. Uh, rental cars. are good
1: uh I, I was just gonna say the, the only exception to that was due north car rental uh on the island we got a pickup truck through them they were super nice really yeah cool. Very convenient. yeah and
0: that was nice um to be able to get pickup trucks um because you know like you might have a fishing you know a couple of days to go fishing or if you get stuck in town you might want to do a little road system kind of type hunt maybe or whatnot. So, you know, we're, you know, hauling meat around town. It was nice to have that pickup truck. Um, and it was a little more affordable that way through due North or Toro. It's like Airbnb, you know, it can be hit and miss. You can get some colorful people on there, but I think someone tried to charge Ned, uh, extra money for a dead fly on the seat of one of his Toros, <laughs> which was funny. But anyway, most of them are pretty good. So, and then you broke down all the costs for like the um, so there's Airbnb on the front end. On the back end, we stayed at a little hotel in town called Shelikoff Lodge, which we'll get into more on that later. Um, and then the the uh, Toros around town. And then what did that cost break out to total?
1: Uh, off the top of my head, I think it was like 1,100 bucks. Yeah, ish. that's
0: what. You, yeah, you. I already knew the answer but yeah it was like 1100 and then we split that three ways so it was like 350 ish bucks each for so you know pretty affordable um not not bad i would say and
1: i i would add an asterisk to that a little bit uh in that we basically did this the most economical way possible without like camping out in tents <laughs> <laughs> yeah so while in it, town if, like everybody got comfortable rooms and like you had like multiple vehicles or even like much of a say in which kind of vehicle you got it would quickly get more expensive than that That is basically true. we did everything as bare bones as possible because we're three dudes who are kind of young and dumb yeah but, <laughs> uh,
0: that's true we did we did uh <laughs> stack up three guys in one airbnb room um you know we me and ned shared a room at the hotel so Um, and it, you know, it's not like it probably wasn't the nicest hotel in town, but I mean, it was good enough. And, uh, so yeah, you can do it. You can be more plush if you want, but that's kind of how we did it. Um, so yeah, so moving on, um, the flight was really cool. It was a little bumpy on the way out. We almost got delayed because of weather, but we're able to get out on time, which was nice. And this is something that just popped into my head. So Ned, when he booked this trip, um it was a christmas surprise for me so i wasn't really involved but um when ned booked it he booked a 6 day time frame in the back country and intentionally right because weather windows so yep. speak to that real quick
1: yeah um man there are a bunch of different rabbit holes that you can go down with that but i'll try to keep it concise yeah. uh, basically 6 days the bottom line is 6 days is a long time for a blacktail hunt on Kodiak the only way that it could really end up taking you that long or should end up taking you that long <laughs> is if you have things go south yeah. which as we saw happened with us um, it yeah the time frame that we that the maximum time frame that I had allotted ended up being exactly what we needed but mm-hmm that's because we had a really bad stretch of weather right in the middle of our trip that was not forecasted to happen. So like to compare a little bit, the trip I did in 2019, we were in and out in 72 hours basically. It was, and honestly that was a great amount of time because that kept the meat nice and fresh. It like gave us enough time to see the area where we are and like experience the Kodiak backcountry you know, cook a few meals, get an idea for the pattern of life around the area where we were, um, and then go out and get two nice bucks down and uh, get out in a timely fashion. But yeah, this past time in 2021, it ended up being one afternoon of good weather, get one deer down, and then we ended up taking all four of those (laughs) days in the middle, basically to just you know, try to not see something else happen. Yeah. <laughs> and we ended up using the full six days. Um, but yeah, to what Hunter was saying, the reason that I booked it that way was so that if there were a weather window of three or four days in there, anywhere in that six day window, then you could talk to Seahawk and say, Hey, what y'all's availability? Let's see if we can schedule our trip so that it coincides with the best period of weather within those six days. Yeah. Um, you know, not intending to stay there the whole time, even though we ended up having to do that. yeah.
0: Yeah. If you book three days and, um, you know, it could be that you get in and out in three days and all is well and dandy, but this is, you know, this is Alaska, it's Kodiak. Um, so if you do book only a three day hunt, there's a decent chance you could get delayed a day or two or whatnot and mess things all up. So the nice six day window, You know if you know worst case scenario we had gotten delayed a couple days or you know whatever it just gives you a little buffer in there so about that was smart but um other things you know as far as the camp goes that i thought were that stuck out i mean obviously you want to get a bear fence um so what we did for that was if you're flying the different air service you can talk to your air service and they will recommend you know somebody but basically we rented a bear fence from a company called Kodiak camps. And I just basically called them paid for the, um, you know, paid for the bear fence and then they dropped it off at Seahawk and it was already there ready to go for us. Um, so Kodiak camps is, is a good one. Um, you know, we, we brought multiple extra tarps and a, I don't know. What would you call that little shelter thing that Tommy brought? It was a nice little like waterproof shelter with two poles on it to keep our gear from getting rained on basically.
1: Yeah. Uh, just kind of like a gear TP for extra yeah. gear storage. Um, that's something that I've crucial. had. Yeah. That's something that I've put in every AR for Alaska that I've done a lot of these places to include our camp this time ended up being, uh, pretty tundra like you know like alpine meadows and tundra like really almost no trees between which you could make like a gear cache yeah i don't think i saw a
0: tree the whole time like the closest thing to a tree would be like a big alder bush
1: yeah like basically the spruce forest part of kodiak is pretty much limited to the northern third of the island once you get you know, down towards the south end where we were, like it's basically tundra and alpine meadows. You yeah. got some willows, some alders, but in terms of having a teepee to store gear, I would say that that's really crucial. That just keeps you from having to like do a jigsaw puzzle of keeping gear under your your tent so that it doesn't get wet with dew or rain at the end of every day hunting saves you a lot of time just lets you spread your gear out a lot more it's really nice plus
0: we were able to kind of congregate under there like in some of the down times and like eat meals together under there and um you know later on get out of the sunshine or the rain or whatever it was um so that was nice to have and i actually since this was not a pack-in it was a fly-in hunt i brought a little camp chair which, um, was pretty nice. And I think the other guys were a little jealous a couple of times. I had a nice chair to sit in, (laughs) but, um, if you got room and weight is less of a consideration, maybe a little uh, foldable camp chair. Um, but yeah, that, that gear thing was big. And then we, you know, brought an extra tarp for a meat cache as well. I do want to get more in detail about that later, but, um, another random thing that Tommy brought, which I'd wouldn't have thought of but was pretty good was this little like plastic shovel for digging holes to use the restroom in <laughs> because there's not really that many rocks to flip over and um so that was that was a good little piece of uh gear to have. Um make sure you bring plenty of fuel, um, camp shoes to let your feet air out. Um and, you know, on this style of hunt, and I do want to talk more about this later. When we kind of get into gear, but I brought a bigger tent. I had like a big uh, Hilleberg tent that I decided to invest in. And it had, you know, I had extra gear with camera stuff and, and whatnot. So it had a big vestibule and a big, you know, a big uh, inner chamber of the tent. So that was that was pretty nice. But um, anything else like gear wise, as far as camp that you can think of? Just uh, I think I can stuff.
1: draw an interesting contrast with what you were just saying about your tent, because bottom line, I was supposed to have a two-person tent for this trip, and that did not end up making it to Alaska with <laughs> someone who's supposed to bring it for me. So I ended up doing Kodiak with my like little twenty-ounce ultralight one-person <laughs> backpacking tent, um, Nemo Hornet. A, yeah, Nemo Hornet. That thing's actually great. Uh, yeah. it's it's a cool little tent. I have now spent a lot of backcountry time in that thing and it's awesome but you know I'm kind of built like a pilot Um, I'm 58 160 if you're much bigger than that you would have a really bad time trying to be like comfortably dry in that thing with like any amount of gear Um, yeah really it's best to have Like a two-person tent for
0: For each person
1: if you like sleeping in different tents or if you're going to bring like a multi-person tent or an outfitter tent just have room for a few extra people in there because like hunter was saying kodiak's weather just gets so rowdy and you got to be able to keep all your gear out of the elements and everything um there's just a very marked difference between the quality of life that Hunter led on this trip and the quality <laughs> of life that I led on this trip in my tiny little backpacking tent.
0: Yeah, uh, man. I yeah, mean I didn't work, but you did. And that's pretty tough with that stuff. But so I did my original Kodiak gear dump video a while back and I was gonna use my like Marmot Catalyst two-person tent. I had some guys reach out to me. I did some more thinking about it, and I decided to upgrade to this. It's a Hilleberg Namaj 2 GT. Again, not cheap, but it's it's a good investment for long term. I'll be able to use it for years and years and years. Um, it's not small; or that light, so it's not a backpacking tent by any means. But on this style of tent or this style of hunt, it was amazing. Um, again, I know I had more gear than most guys, but still, like. It was amazing to be able to put all my stuff in there, know it was completely dry and secure and have a separate area for sleeping that didn't get wet or dirty. So on this style of hunt, um, pay particular attention to your shelter. It's just because of the weather in Alaska can be so rowdy. Um, You know, we were talking about bear fences earlier. Just a quick note on bears. I know it's talked about a lot with Kodiak we saw a good number of bears like in and around our hunt area, but they were all pretty polite. I mean, we never had any issues with them. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't consider, I would definitely bring a bear fence and bring bear spray and, or sidearm. um, But uh, I don't know. What'd you say? They're pretty polite. Wouldn't you say, Ned?
1: Yeah. uh, That time of year, you just got to kind of think about the biology of bears. I mean, there are many millions of salmon, running on yak at that time and they're just so focused on that that yeah, like you said, they seem to mind their manners pretty well. Um later on in the year, October, November, apparently from what I hear, they start getting a little tired of salmon Mm. and they kinda like, especially on Raspberry and a fog knack where the densities are just so high with those things, they'll like hear a gunshot and they'll be like, oh steak. Hell yeah. (laughs) So uh, later on in the season, especially um, something that might be good to go over is like bear contingencies. I, a lot of people have asked yeah. me about that. Uh, like, how do we do that? I had to give a little like ORM presentation for that, for the trip that I did before this. And basically the way that I work is like an escalation of force. So the best tool that you can possibly have is your situational awareness. Of course, you just never want to surprise any bear, but of Course, especially you don't want to surprise a sound cubs, yeah. Um, which all so, the bears
0: we saw were thousand cubs,
1: right? I think we were seeing the same family of them.
0: Well, there was one family we saw the first night that had four cubs, and then I think the second two groups we saw were probably the same family, but anyway,
1: yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? We saw a group of a group or several groups of thousand cubs around where we were, and basically. To get back to the, uh, to get back to that kind of like escalation of force thing that I was talking mm-hmm. about, the, like that all, all of our uh, encounters with them were resolved at the lowest level, which was just us like paying attention to where they were, staying away from there, making loud noises yeah. when appropriate, of course, that identified us as humans. And they completely left us alone. And that's probably like 90% of bear encounters will, you know, resolve themselves right. in that way. For example, and, when
0: we were walking back up to our kill site on the way back in, is you know, when we were going through like a taller brush and stuff like that. we were basically just walking and yelling, "Hey bear, hey bear!" along the way. So, yeah. But anyway, continue.
1: Yeah, just just kind of letting them know, like, "Hey, we're here. We're people. Yeah, stay away," and they usually mind that pretty well. Um, then we always have bear spray, which is pretty effective in most situations. You know, obviously you got to pay attention to the wind and it's got to be accessible and something that you can get to in a, you know, a dynamic situation. But yeah, having bear spray is like my second step. And then third step, we both were carrying Glock twenties. But it's just best to avoid that if possible, (laughs) you know, because that's really bad situation getting in into that kind of interaction with the bear um so just trying to diffuse things at the lowest level possible is basically the sop that i've stuck with for the past like six trips i've done to alaska it's always totally. worth it all, so
0: yeah man good good stuff yeah that's a good note on escalation of force there um all right let's get into a little bit about the hunt itself and even black-tailed deer so Give us a little rundown, just briefly, uh, before we jump in about the blacktail on Kodiak. What they're kind of like?
1: Yeah, so um, just kind of the history of blacktail on Kodiak. Uh, they're not native to Kodiak, even though blacktail, of course, exists naturally in all of those rainforests in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they tried to introduce them a few times in like the twenties and thirties, and Basically, after that point, they adapted to the island and the population took off. Um, so, there are a few different ways to hunt deer on Kodiak, and uh, pretty much <laughs> we picked the most masochistic of those, um, <laughs> which is, you know, the poor man's sheep hunt, as they call it, which is getting out there and. Uh, August, even early September when bucks are up in the high Alpine. Yeah. and
0: Beautiful yeah, though, man.
1: Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, uh, it's a really, really cool hunt to do. Uh, I definitely enjoy it. Um, a, a lot more sweat equity involved with that. Oh, yeah. And also the potential for things not to go your way. Like honestly, on this trip, we only, just barely averted
0: that's true
1: on this trip (laughs) by a weather window on the last day um the basically the early season hunt can be really really tough yeah like later on in the year when there's snow happening and those things are rutting um down at lower elevations say again i
0: was saying they're down at lower elevations as the season progresses
1: yeah. They're down at lower elevations and I've personally never done a rut hunt for blacktail. but from everything I hear, they respond really, really well to calls and they're mm-hmm. very active and they're concentrated in a small area. So, you know, like Alaska residents will talk about going out and like, how many deer did you get today <laughs> on this strip? So <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's, it is a much higher probability you know nothing in hunting is certain but you're you have a much greater chance of doing well later in the year than you do just like the way that we were spotting and stalking these alpine basins at what is really the beginning of the hunting season um and dude i
0: i underestimated this hunt like honestly um just as you're talking like i think i heard so many you know podcasts and stories of guys like you're saying who probably hunted in october november and like, Oh yeah, you know, I filled two, two, three tags or whatever. And, um, even some videos out there I've seen on YouTube guys just kind of basically wandering around the woods randomly and like blasting deer and stuff. Um, and so I I was kind of like of the mindset of like, Oh yeah, man, like we're gonna go up there and be, you know, we're going to get multiple deer down pretty quick. And, um, and, and definitely the weather played a factor, but um, definitely a tougher hunt than I was expecting. But, you know, it was an awesome and rewarding hunt, too.
1: Yeah, no, it, it ended up being great, uh, but we got really, really lucky <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with what we did. Um, also, just one more note, geographically, uh, as far as the island goes, you basically have like, they pretty much refer to it as the north and the south of yeah. the island. Um, but the town of Kodiak is on the northeastern edge of the island. And that northern side of the island is more accessible. People will take boats to a lot of the bays that are close to Kodiak. And um, like, you know, you can get flights are not nearly as expensive if you go to that northern side of the island. Yeah. Uh, but we wanted to really, really immerse ourselves in the experience on this well, one, yeah. we did, um, Gun. You know basically way down to the south end of the island and that was uh i think that was the reason that the trip ended up uh with everything being so starkly defined in terms of successes and failures yeah <laughs> so um that's just something to note is that they're basically different levels of involvement that you can have with the experience like Uh, A lot of years, if there hasn't been a rough winter, then it would be probably pretty easy to take a 15-minute flight into one of the closer lakes to town, set up, find a few bucks, get them down, be out the next day. Um, Or you can fly all the way down to the south end of the island by Old Harbor, like us, and spend six days on the X. Yeah. Anything in between.
0: Which, you know, honestly, looking back, I know like we almost got out of there eating tag suit, but I honestly wouldn't change anything about this hunt the way it just went down. Um, And I'm looking forward to sharing. If you listen to the last podcast, you'll know the whole story, but I got the whole thing on video and um, I don't have time to edit it all together now, but um, that's going to be coming out, you know, this year sometime. And it's going to be a really cool video. Just the way it went down, it was like perfectly
1: scripted and and just ended on such a high note. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go double on those first two deer that we saw the first morning?
0: <laughs> I mean, there's always coulda, woulda, shoulda. I know that's in I'm your kidding. AR, I'm too.
1: <laughs> would have saved yeah. us a lot of time getting that's beat true. the hell up by Kodiak's Elements if but we had <laughs> got those first two bucks.
0: Though. That makes it so much sweeter, though, that we grinded it out for four days in the rain and wind. Um, yeah. Okay. But anyway, yeah. So the deer, you know, like most deer, they're very crepuscular this time of year in Alaska, the, you know, evening and morning are later in the day. And we actually did end up changing that up a little bit. I remember one night, you know, we'd been kind of coming back to camp around seven when it doesn't get dark to like midnight. So I was like, why don't we try going out at seven and see what that happens. I did see a buck that night, but it was so windy. They were still laying down, but, um, they are very weather driven. Like we've mentioned on here a bunch of times, we got four days of rain and wind and fog and the bucks just disappeared. I mean, the, the does were coming out, the ones that had babies. Cause you know, my theory was they need to be, you know, teaching the, teaching the fawns, what kind of browse to be in and also probably eating more to Cause they were still nursing. A lot of these fawns still had spots, but, um, the bucks just disappeared. I mean, the, the place where we found the deer eventually had been glassed several dozens of times. Um, so, and it wasn't till that kind of high pressure, like Ned said, that high pressure, clear air, a little chillier came through in the last day where we doubled up and we noticed the deer like to hang out kind of in the edges of the vegetation. So you'll have these dark patches of thick alder and tall stuff. And as the, as you get closer to the tops of the ridges, it'll, kind of end the tree line will end and it's um it can still be thick salmon berry and whatnot and fern but it it kind of becomes almost like tundra and it seemed like they were kind of on the edges of those thick vegetation or in little grassy pockets within near the top is that what you'd say too
1: yeah i think it's i think basically the movement i observed over the past two months i've done there it's kind of on a spectrum like most of the time when the conditions are like somewhere in between bad and good, it's like you said, they're sitting there right in that transition area, kind of, anybody who's been on Kodiak, or if you go to Kodiak, then you'll see this. Basically, you've got like thick alders, salmon berries, and that's this like dark verdant green. And then there's usually like a line of elevation, kind of like a tree line. Yeah. Um, even though it doesn't actually consist of trees on a lot of the island. Yeah, it's anyway, line. line where it basically becomes a lighter shade of green. Yeah. It's like a transition area. Most of the time, they're hanging out somewhere near that transition area. Mm-hmm. And then, as the conditions get more towards the optimal that Hunter was talking about, then they kind of will start stepping out. And that was like, you know, that nice afternoon was when you saw Zelda over there facing <laughs> around. Yeah. And. Zelda's also, a
0: nickname I gave to a buck I saw because the place he lived like just looked anyway, crazy. <laughs>
1: yeah. And also Tommy's buck that we shot on the first full evening, that was like a nice weather window. And guess what? He was chilling in one of those bedding mm-hmm. areas that was kind of exposed in the midst of the salmonberry. So it's like as the conditions get better, they start coming out more and more from that yeah. really thick, dense vegetation. But I mean yeah, I mean, this, is, this was like one of the key learning points for me is that one day we were glassing and I watched that doe on like 30 power magnification through my spotting scope. I was mm-hmm. watching, cause I thought I saw like the flick of an ear. So I put my spotting scope on this bush and I watched this doe stand up, like stretch out, take a few little snack bites, like shake the water off and then bed back down and just disappear. And she was, yeah. total length of time she was visible was less than 30 seconds. And like, it would be almost impossible to tell that there was a deer there. Yeah. Bottom line of that is that these things will sit in those salmon berries and alder thickets. And like, we even use the alder thickets as wind breaks when yeah, we were glassing, we and they are incredibly effective. It's they, like, they are. you can just immediately tell the difference in how nice it is to be behind one of those versus out in the open. And then you're like, oh, well, yeah, there are probably hundreds of deer in this basin yeah. that we're looking at but they're all just bedded down in that stuff and you'll never see them.
0: Yeah, you'd think like crawling behind a huge rock, you're like, oh, there's a big rock, let me get like, right in there and it, it'll sh- shield the wind. It does nothing. But like you get behind a big clump of bushes, it's like the 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 wind gets turned off. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, so, and, like it just feels so much warmer and nicer and like even when there was that rain that those salmon berries and alders really do block like most of yeah. uh, like the moderate rain. So, they really do. And like, most environment environment to be bedded down.
0: Totally. <laughs> and as far as like the bet, I remember when we walked up on Tommy's buck, uh, which I don't know if we mentioned this in the first episode, if you haven't listened to the episode from last week, we recapped the whole hunt. So definitely go back and listen to it. But Tommy's buck, like right before you guys started stalking it, it stood up, turned away from us 180 degrees and bedded back down like perfectly. But Anyway, when we walked up to his bed, I noticed like it was like mowed down, like it had been used thoroughly probably by multiple deer or maybe it was just his bed. I don't know. But um, you will see like very clearly well-defined like beds in these pockets in the alders. Like it was very obvious, like mowed grass. It was crazy. Um, so good night anyone- out for those
1: when when we were cleaning that thing over there too i mean it was like the green of a golf course (laughs) yeah yeah exactly that was
0: like in his bed
1: yeah so there are these little pockets in between the salmon berries that are like intersections between their game trails that it's actually when you're flying in you can see these game trails do look from the air very much like road systems Mm -hmm. um and you can see like where all of them intersect in these little like bedding areas. And also mineral licks, those kind of like sandy, yeah. rocky patches where you'll see. I didn't see as many in this place where we were this time. The last time where I was in 2019, there was like, there were two or three patches. They were kind of like bare dirt looking patches through yeah. the vinos. And then when we got up to them, we actually walked through one of them to uh, go shoot the buck that I shot then. And you can see the soil is kind of like, minerally and sandy mm-hmm. and loamy a little bit and they just seem to really like hanging like every night we were glassing we'd see a lot of deer in those areas.
0: Yeah. Um and you also just kind of made me think of something to mention also one thing I don't know if this is a common practice among the air services or if it's just Roland. I don't have anything to compare it to. But just from our experience, Roland um flew us around like three or four lakes let us look at them and look for deer and and let us pick which lake we want to go to, which is like amazing. Uh, I don't know if that's a common practice or not, but if, if it's possible, that was cool. He, could, he circled around, gave us a look, we could spot deer. And then, um, Ned did actually make the final call, uh, of the lake we went to. But, um, anyway, if that's available, try to do that. Um, as far as other stuff, um, as far as the hunt goes, there were ptarmigans. So if you're so inclined, we brought a little 410 22 combo gun with us. We were able to pick off a ptarmigan. Um, there was a substantial amount of them around, I'd say. Um, but we only got one, but we didn't really... We were pretty focused on trying to fill those tags. Pretty focused
1: on just trying not to die for <laughs> three days there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Just hanging on man um another thing you mentioned um definitely bring a spotter um that's helpful you know some of these deers have or some of these deer have smaller racks so you know and a lot of, you know we were glassing over some big areas so it was really nice to have that spotter to really confirm bucks versus does um on note, that
1: note, with that uh for non-residents it is a buck only hunt so yes. uh residents can shoot does starting at some point in the year I think it's but non-residents I am almost certain are restricted to bucks the entire year. So yeah. just something to know.
0: And I think you're supposed to also retain evidence of sex, which means, which I didn't know this, which means keep a testicle attached to one of your hams when you're re- rear quarters. So just something to think about there. Um, Game trails, obviously, if you can follow those, they pick the best routes. So instead of bushwhacking, try to find a game trail. That's that's a big one for Ned. Um, and just kind of get to the top of these spots where you can see, you know, we would get to these tops of ridges where we could see drainages or low spots below us and just get up there in glass. I don't know. Oh, last thing on that too, which is something that was in Ned's... 2019 AAR that panned out for us is that, you know, I think a lot of these deer, depending on where you are, they're just not that used to humans and human interaction. They're definitely less spooky than whitetail. But as far as like gunshots go, even, you know, if you listen to the last podcast and you watch the film and it comes out, me and Ned doubled up. So he shot his buck, my buck stood or actually stayed bedded and was kind of like looking around, like what's going on. And then bang, I nailed him. So it is possible for those follow-up shots. So keep that in mind. Even if you see a group of bucks, maybe you and your buddy, instead of one, like there was, I mentioned this before, but there was this one moment where we were going in, we thought we saw two bucks and I put my stuff down. I set up the camera. I had this decision time of like, do I grab my rifle and go up there with Ned? Or do I focus on filming him shoot this one buck? And I'm glad I did, but I made that split decision to grab my rifle set the camera up, grab my rifle and go up there. And I'm so glad I did because after Ned's buck dropped, I was able to jump on the pack and and get mine. So any other thoughts about the hunt itself?
1: I guess I'd probably just underscore those game trails uh, that you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you lose game trail on in the backcountry of Kodiak, especially in an early season hunt like this when everything's still all leafed out, you're probably going to have a really bad time yeah. (laughs) and you'll probably exert if you get down into the salmon berries and alders, like a really Herculean amount of effort to go a very short ways. Mm -hmm. And then you'll come out on the other side and you'll see a game trail that went a much easier way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like when we were doing that pack out, especially, I don't know if you saw, but like I was always looking Like 30, 40 yards ahead of where we were to try to find, like, make sure that we were staying on contiguous game trails because, I mean, even a small one of those thickets of alders and salmonberries can just be a real nightmare, tear all your gear apart, just be super difficult. And the game trails everywhere that I have been so far on Kodiak are very well defined. Yeah. So yeah, that would be one of my biggest points is just like stick to those really religiously. it you got a lot.
0: And, you know, the salmon berries have thorns and a lot of those thicker vegetation patches, I noticed too, will have like uh, hidden like rocks and like craggy little like holes and stuff in them. Uh, so you can easily trip. You can't really see what's down there. So, yeah, definitely stick to game trails. Um, all right. So, as far as. Meat care goes. This is a big one for Ned, as it should be. This should be for everybody. Um, but a uh, couple things. Like I said, we built a meat cache, which was just uh, use an extra tarp, set up some poles, some rocks to hold the corners down, and a line between the poles with a tarp on it to keep our meat shaded and dry. Um, also, there were no trees around. So, Ned, I don't know if it's his idea or I don't know where you got that, but Ned, we brought some rocks up from the lake, some big rocks and built kind of like, I don't know, an altar for lack of a better word and put them on there, which was able to keep the meat cool and get some airflow under there.
1: Yeah. The, that does two things. So first, like you said, it gets that airflow going on the bottom side of the meat, which is really important. Also those larger stones retain a lot of that cooler temperature that they get during the night. So, um, the nighttime lows got down into the forties and thirties where we were, Mm -hmm. uh, 2000 feet up. And that was really great for meat care. Uh, because we, you know, you'd leave these stones out and they would get down to at least near that ambient temperature overnight. And then you would keep them in the shade during the day and they would keep that meat nice and cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, the big things are just having some kind of shade to keep the sun off because as we saw on the last day, when the sun comes out, it gets yes. pretty hot. Um, and then having high quality game bags, uh like those Argali game bags that you had were yeah. really great. Um, high quality game bags to keep the insects out, and then keeping the meat preferably off the ground with airflow on all sides of it. Yeah. And, uh, then also spraying with citric acid. I found that to be really, really helpful. I just have a little pack of, you know, half an ounce of citric acid powder. And when we shot our animals, just kind of broke my kill kit open, poured some of my drinking water in there, had a little spray bottle and we sprayed all of our meat down and all of the meat that I've had so far has been really fantastic. So,
0: and you got that citric acid powder. Would you get that at the grocery store?
1: Yeah. So weirdly, when I was trying to find that, I still am on my same container from like uh, years ago. It lasts a really long time, but um, it's kind of a difficult item to find, or at least it was when I was looking. Uh, You just go to the canning section and Mm -hmm. citric acid is used for canning. So you'll find like the sections of a lot of grocery stores that have like mason jars and pectin and stuff like that. And they'll just have like a little plastic jar of like four or five ounces of citric acid powder.
0: Cool. Yeah. That's a really good tip. Um, so he, yeah, he said he kept that a little bit of powder, citric acid, add some water and we sprayed that down in our meat right after we cleaned it. That just keeps the bacteria growth off of there. It gives you a little extra protection. Um, you know, guys talk a lot about sinking the meat in contractor bags. Um, or we even, there was some snow not far from where we were, um, camping and we even considered hiking up and getting some snow if we needed to which if we had needed to it might been a viable option but those are kind of last resorts you know back to the game bags that's huge keep the bugs and flies off there those argali game bags are really nice um you know if you i think if you use the code HQ10 you can save 10% at argali also um as far as kill kits i mean um I brought my Argali knife, which was awesome. The Sirac knife also brought a Havillon. Um, So having those two uh, for butchering and for skinning and all that was perfect. Also bring a small handsaw if you can, because um, trying to cut a deer's head off with a small blade is not fun. And we messed with that a little bit, but um, I would bring a little handsaw if you can. Um, that came in handy later as well. Um, actually
1: one of one of the items that i have heard of that i'm going to be adding to my elastic kill kit from now on uh, are the saws that are basically a length of wire yeah and it's pretty much two handles on the end of a length of wire yeah and you can just like wrap that around something and just kind of go back and seen those
0: have you used one before
1: I, you know, I haven't used it. I've heard that people have used those really effectively. If cool. you're going to be removing the head of an animal to do like a shoulder mount or a Euro mount or whatever, um, that could be really helpful. Also, I've heard of people disarticulating the, uh, knee joints of animals with those. I don't know. I don't find that to be too hard to do with a knife. Yeah, It's pretty easy with a knife. It's a pretty but, yeah. small item. Wouldn't take up a lot of space. Totally. And also could be really good for cutting wood for fire.
0: Yeah if that's in your area. So yeah, definitely meat care is a big thing back there. Cause like, you know, we got, um, you know, we shot a buck on basically the first full day and then we had four days of nothing. Luckily the weather was cool, shady. Um, and because of the steps we did, you know, the, the meat is fine. Uh, but definitely something to think about. Um, and also, you know, if you want to mount your, mount your deer as well. So um, moving on from that though, I just want to hit, um, two more things. The last one is kind of the back end logistics. I know this is where a lot of guys have a lot of questions, um, and it, it can be kind of intimidating, but, uh, if you're like me or Ned, you know, most hunters, you know, the meat is huge and, um, that's a really big part of the kill. Um, one of the biggest parts, if not the biggest part So um, how do you get this prized meat back home? And it kind of freaks people out, but it's really not that bad. So, uh, and again, we're speaking from our experience on this trip. Um, There's different ways to do it, but this is kind of basically how we did it. So once we quartered our animals up in the field, got them in good game bags, all that, flew them home or back to town um, the next day on our air transport, and then we were staying at a place called the Shelikoff Lodge. It's kind of iconic little like motel in town, um, and the the staff was really friendly. And they had um, a walk in fridge and a walk in freezer they let us use. So we immediately took all our our quarters. Yeah, they were still quarters. Yeah, and we just took them straight into the walk in fridge and the heads. And that was that was awesome.
1: Yeah, that was that was really huge. I was actually earlier in the podcast when you were talking about accommodations. I was going to say Chelakoff Lodge, the real MVP. <laughs>
0: yeah, dude, they helped uh, us out.
1: Yeah, with the with the refrigeration and freezing space, that is. Yeah, for me, that's the biggest part of the trip. Um, yeah, everybody says that early season blacktail venison is like some of the highest quality game meat on earth, and I wholeheartedly agree.
0: Dude, um, these animals have li- like. I mean, deer is clean enough here, but you got to think these animals are eating, you know, GMO corn and soybeans covered in pesticides. You know, these deer have never even seen a farm like they're only eating vegetation, basically, like that comes from that God grew right there in the mountains. Like it's cl- it's as clean meat as you can probably get.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that that's what it tastes like. You know, yeah. it, just, it just tastes incredible. Yeah, we had
0: a couple backstrap uh, little uh, meals from Tommy's Buck, and that stuff was so good.
1: Yeah, just a little bit of backstrap and some salt and butter, pepper in a, in a skillet over the, uh, yeah, over the stoves. It was so incredible. Good. Um, yeah, so do, do you want me to pick up from there with how, how we kept going?
0: Yeah, sure, just real quick before we do that. Bring a little bit of seasoning and some butter or cooking oil, because when you get your buck down, you're going to want to try a little bit and and, uh, and have a little pan or something you can cook it in. That's, that's fun. So that's something you can bring into camp. But yeah, go ahead, man.
1: Uh, very good point. You definitely want some kind of skillet or something better than the cup that you boil your mountain know, water in <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to cook sure. your back in. And those um,
0: deer are so fat. They are covered with like an inch and a half or 2 inch like layer of fat on their back. It's crazy. I I we didn't try cooking with it. Apparently, cervid fat is not great for cooking, but I was really impressed by how much fat they had on them or surprised, I mean.
1: Yeah, they're they're ready for winter. <laughs> yeah, man.
0: So anyway, back to the back end stuff.
1: Yeah. So basically um, from like the way that we were operating, yeah, from the time that you get the deer down until the time that it is processed into its individual cuts, just trying to keep it as refrigerated as possible. And mm-hmm. like you said, the walk-in fridge in Shelikoff Lodge was really big for that. Um. So yeah, we threw it in that fridge overnight and then we deboned it got it processed into its individual cuts. But let me
0: mention a point on that though. That's um, so we, this is a good tip for guys that anybody can do. Um, And so Ned's a vet veteran. So we were hoping to, and we ended up later getting access to uh, the coast guard base, which has an awesome processing station there. And we'll touch on that in a second, but we were not able to get permission initially for him to sponsor me onto the base. We ended up working that out later. But for this, we actually went and I called the air service. They recommended there's a public fish cleaning station down by the harbor in Kodiak. So the main harbor in the town of Kodiak um, towards the the back and near the water there's a little gazebo building next to that there's some public fish cleaning stations and that's where we actually butchered all three of our deer into individual portion sizes and put them in vacuum sealed bags so anyway take it from there
1: (laughs) yeah now so basically refrigeration temperature uh right off the bat from the time that you you know break your buck down until the time that you're deboning it um and then, yeah, deboned it, put it into vacuum seal bags, and then uh, we, I took the vacuum seal bags onto base, which we're fortunate to get base access there. Coast Guard has an awesome station, cleaning station with chamber sealers, um, then sealed those bags up so that they had the vacuum seal on them, then took them back to the freezer at mm-hmm. Shellacoff Lodge, got them as frozen as we could, which was pretty much most of the way frozen. And uh, then through gel packs, frozen gel packs in with them and flew back with those. Gel yeah. packs are like the second best way to go. You basically wanna to try to take up as much of the empty space inside your cooler as you can with frozen material like gel packs. The best thing is dry ice. Right. Dry ice will actually actively freeze stuff that's not yet frozen. There is no dry ice, to my knowledge, available on the island of Kodiak, so the gel packs seem to be about as good a trick as you can do, and then you just load all that up in one of those fish boxes and check it as a bag.
0: Yeah. Now let me get a little bit more in detail uh, on some of these things for guys who have never done this before. Um, so first of all, the fish boxes. So many people hunt and fish in Kodiak and bring back meat that every pretty much grocery store and, and then Walmart – lots of places have these boxes. They're just cardboard boxes that are lined with a styrofoam uh, lining like a cooler. Uh, They're cheap. They're very easy to find. So that's where we kept our meat in. Um, Once we had butchered at the public fish cleaning station and then um, sealed our packages on the coast guard base, which most people listening to this will not be able to do. But um, if you, You know you can use ziploc bags it's not the best thing in the world but i've done it with meat before so that could be a secondary option when you go to walmart grab some ziploc bags for your portions however you want to do it um then we went back to the shellacoff lodge like ned was saying Um, make sure when you put your meat in the freezer don't put the top of the cooler on it will Insulate it from freezing. Open that thing up, and even if you can spread the, if you're able to spread the meat out a little bit, because I noticed some of my meat, at the, even at the bottom that was covered up by other meat, wasn't solidly frozen even 24 hours after. So if you're able to spread that meat out a little bit, get it as solidly frozen as you can. Um, then on the ice packs, so I went to Walmart and Safeway. They did not have gel packs. I had to go to a place called Island Seafood. Um, right there, it's right in town is right by all the fish cannery places and seafood places. Really cool guy that works in there. um, Island seafood. They sold us all of the gel packs we needed already pre-frozen, uh, pretty cheap. And I bought some fish from them as well. Throw those guys in there. Um, and I think that was all I wanted to mention on that.
1: That's a pro move too, by the way. I'll just call that out. I flew out earlier than those guys by like nine hours and those dudes, Hunter and uh, Tommy were able to pick up a bunch of fresh silver and halibut fillets. And like, Oh yeah. And I really wish I had time to do that because you're getting the freshest seafood on earth at a pretty good price. You know, if like us, you didn't have time to go out and get it yourself, that, that was a real pro move, man. Yeah. I have been able to swing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, if you if you're able to, guys, like schedule a full, I would say like day and a half, if not like two days, uh, like to. I mean, it's a lot. It doesn't maybe sound like a lot, but it's a lot to like properly care for your meat, pack it up the right way, you know, all the logistics, make sure all your stuff is packed, et cetera, et cetera. Schedule a day and a half or two on the back end of your trip for logistics stuff, because then you're not in a hurry. Um, and then as far as like heads and stuff. So, um, I have some awesome pictures of Ned caping out his giant deer on the desk of our hotel room. And I did the same thing. Um, and we did clean up, you know, we didn't leave the room a disaster. We even vacuumed a little bit and cleaned up every well. And I let also, I left a pretty good tip for the cleaning ladies. Ned, just so you know, Nice. Um, <laughs> but, um, so yeah, we did that. Um, so me and Ned were able... So he caped his, took the cape home, and then we actually sawed off the skull plate and everything, uh, which, which was funny. I won't go into detail, but uh, it was funny. And um, I did the same thing. I just skinned my whole head to do a Euro, and just I just had to take the rest. I was going to maybe shoulder mount it, but I decided just logistically and monetarily, I'm just going to do a Euro, plus I like Euros. So I threw away the rest of the stuff in the dumpster outside, wrapped up my skull in, um, actually in a game bag and then also in paper towel and then taped it all up, which just reminded me the missing game bag that I thought I had lost is on my skull in the freezer. So I'm glad I said that anyway. Um, so yeah, so that's what I did. And I just checked, I just put my skull wrapped up, you know, nice and clean in my carry on and Ned carried on his huge rack. Like <laughs> you had people stopping the airport for like pictures and practically signing autographs. Cause if you guys didn't hear the last episode, his buck was like massive. So anyway, you just checked yours on. No problem. Right.
1: Yeah. I I was or carried it on honestly kind of concerned about that, but I just got up to the uh, Alaska air counter and I was like, Hey, can I bring this? And they were like, all right, well all of the nasty part is wrapped up. Right. And I was like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sure is. (laughs) So that would be the key point of performance is they don't want you to have like a bunch of stuff hanging off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want like, you don't want like meat and you know, like viscera and stuff hanging off your rack. My experience so far, having done this now three, four times is if you have a deer black tail, uh, skull that doesn't have any of that stuff hanging off of it and you've like, mentioned wrapped it up nicely with tape so that it presents like a pretty organized looking package carry it on just yeah. fine i mean i took i carried mine we both carried ours all the way back to virginia i got some weird looks and uh <laughs> in chicago but yeah whatever.
0: yeah man like i even i was going through security and the tsa lady like they had to do a bag check on my bags That all this camera stuff in there and she was like oh, oh, there's your head. Don't want to mess that up. I know you guys work hard for those. And like, (laughs) she didn't bother them at all. Um, They're used to it. Just make sure it's cleaned up. However, Tommy's buck was velvet and he's a newer hunter. He's not as uh, experienced. He's not as comfortable with just like skinning a head in a hotel room like we were. So, that being said, and I didn't really have time to help him with it, not to mention it was velvet. So there's a whole another layer of like need for preservation there. Uh, so I want to mention this part too for guys um, who might be in that situation or if you want to get your deer mounted. So what we did for that was we went to the hardware store and got Rubbermaid tub. And it's important that you actually use Rubbermaid brand because the other ones, the plastic will uh, shatter. So Rubbermaid brand tub, um, put it in a game bag, put it in the tub, sealed it up. And then we took it to this place called advantage air freight. So if you're going to the airport in Kodiak, you take a from town, you take a left to go the airport. If you go past that and take your first left after the airport, it's this place called advantage air freight. I recommend them. Um, they'll weigh it. The guy even froze the head before. And then Um, My buddy, our buddy, Tommy had researched a taxidermist in Anchorage. So for 20 bucks, this guy shipped the whole tub to Anchorage um, directly to the taxidermist. Of course, you want to talk to your taxidermist beforehand and line this all up, shipped it directly to them. And they're going to do a Euro mount for him and then ship the head back. So if you're in that situation, get a Rubbermaid tub, wrap it up, go to Advantage Air Freight, talk to your taxidermist in Anchorage or wherever you want to ship it. They'll ship pretty much anywhere, I think. And, uh, and that's the way to go for that.
1: One more note on velvet. Um, if you're hunting pretty much anything in August stuff in Alaska, That I mean, some of these animals seem to hang on to their velvet pretty late. Uh, mm-hmm. I shot at caribou in 2018 on August 20th, that was still in full velvet Tommy's buck. It was on the 24th, I think, Mm -hmm. and that thing was still solidly in velvet, not even a sign of starting to shed. Yeah, And um, basically, you're going to want that probably to be preserved. If you try to peel it off, the antlers look very bleach white, and sometimes they're not fully formed. Yeah. Uh, So basically, what Hunter was saying, it adds another step to things. Uh, The Alaskan taxidermists refer to it as expediting, and it's pretty much injecting this preservation solution that has like formaldehyde and stuff in it into the veins that run through the velvet. Yeah. Um, and like i never really thought of that being a lower 48 hunter until i shot that caribou but then when i got up to that thing i was like wow this is such an integral part of like the story of this animal yeah. i really want to get it preserved so For that's sure. just something to note you uh you'll have to keep the antlers refrigerated basically as if they're meat in yes. order to keep that velvet preserved and then they will get them to a taxidermist some people you can try to do it yourself. I'm not super familiar with that. I took my caribou antlers to a taxidermist who did it, and I just saw them last week, and they still look great now, cool. three years later. So,
0: Yeah, that is living flesh, and it will rot just like meat if you're not careful with it. Um, there are some products out there I've heard of, like Velvet Lock, but never tried it. I will say uh, Tommy's antlers seemed fine, even though they were kind of sitting around. I mean, his meat was fine, too, because we took care of it, but... Um, anyway, just something to think about there. Velvet's a little different. Um, and then, you know, once we had our, um, sealed up frozen boxes of meat, you just check it on the airplane like a bag and they're used to it. Like <laughs> probably 75% of people that fly out of Alaska are taking fish boxes on with them at this time of year. So they're used to it. Um, and you will have to pay a little bit. You know, I had tons of bags cause I got a rifle case, camera stuff, hunting stuff, uh, and the boxes. So by that point, I think it was like a hundred bucks, which is pricey, but, um, you know it's worth it to take home your, your meat. So, um, just check it on the airplane. Um, all right, now we're running a little bit low on time here, but I want to hit real quick before we end a couple gear notes. Um, I'll run through mine real quick Ned, and then whatever you want to bring out. Um, so I brought 12 X binos, which were really good on a tripod though. I think tens or even eights might be the way to go because 12's a little hard to get a clear picture without a tripod and I also found felt like the um, the picture was a little small like I couldn't really quickly glass a large area so 12 felt a little bit high of magnification for this hunt for me. Um, on the tripod they were great but um, I might if I have some extra cash sometime in the near future or whatever I might grab a pair of tens for the next one. Um, I was trying out base map for this hunt as opposed to Onyx. Um, I wasn't sure where we're going to be going. So I saved some medium sized offline maps and I got to say, I really like base maps features that I've used so far. I really like it as an app, but the medium quality offline map sucks. Like you can't tell anything about anything where you are. So just be aware of that. Uh, if you can find out where you are, you know, do the high quality map, but The medium quality offline map was terrible. Um, I had Crispy Ativa mid boots. They were very comfortable. They kept my feet dry the entire time, and it was very wet, so that's good. I did have one tear, I noticed, on the back of my boots. Um, I emailed Crispy's warranty people, and they got back to me the same day, so I think there'll be no issue to fix. Other than that, they were perfectly comfortable, perfectly dry, which is big, as Ned will probably mention here in a little bit. Um, I mentioned I was curious about, or wasn't sure if I was going to do a chest holster versus a hip holster. Ended up going with a Black Point Tactical hip holster. Um, it's just easier than trying to sling a huge 10 millimeter off and on with a bino pack, and it didn't really get in my way. Um, again, the tent, I invested in a bigger tent, was very happy I did so. Uh, gators are a must. Um, extra tarps and that gear shelter. Um, my buddy Guy at Western Fly Covers hooked me up with some uh, pack covers and a bino pack cover, rain cover. Now, you do want a back, uh, pack cover you know, always, but I actually found out that they were really good to cover my cameras with. Just having something that I could just throw over my cameras. Um, but whether and he's actually going to look into doing some camera covers later and you can save some money at Western fly. You can check out the show notes. There's a discount code, but anyway, Western fly covers are good covers for your bag and cameras and whatnot. Everything needs to have rain protection. Basically, uh, game bags, knives Argali. Again, there's a discount code in the show notes. Um, but having a quality knife for skinning and quality game bags, as we've mentioned, um, let's see. Oh, lot maybe not lastly trekking poles. I use them a lot, Ned doesn't. I like them. I the other guys had day packs. Um, I brought my full-on xo 4800. Um, it's big enough to carry around a ton of stuff. I had extra stuff with cameras and whatnot. Uh, but also having the ability to throw meat in the meat shelf and then also still have use of my pack with camera gear turned out very helpful. Uh, when Tommy was packing out his buck, <laughs> he was literally carrying, you'll see it in the film, like he's like, Aah! he was like man trying to carry like 30 pounds of meat in a game bag in his hands while hiking up a hill and he was struggling. So, you know, having an actual hunting pack for me was crucial, I think, yeah. You know, Ned can speak to what he thinks about that. But um, other than that, oh, yeah, last thing I want to say the scree stuff I tried was really good, especially the merino base layers and the wasatch long sleeve, whatever. Uh, it dried really fast. Um, and I was pleased with the quality of the scree stuff that I used. Um, for pants, I actually went with a Kuyu pant. Um, I can't, it's the Axis hybrid pant. They're a little warmer, they have side vents, and but they have waterproofing from the knee down and on the butt, which for this hunt was crucial. I didn't have to wear rain pants around, and they're a little warmer, so I did sweat on the packouts, but having that waterproofness from the knee down and on the butt was was really cool because the brush was super wet. So anyway, that's my really quick gear notes. If you have any more questions about that, feel free to drop me a line. And you know all the stuff I used, most of the stuff, Um, I have discount codes for the show notes, but anyway, what about gear notes for you, bud?
1: Um, let's see. I'll keep it, uh, I'll keep it concise here. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to do two heroes and one zero. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) yeah, it was supposed to be, the world's supposed to be about positivity today. Right. So I'm, uh, doing two heroes. Number one, that vortex 11 through 33 razor spotter. Yeah. That thing was sick
0: that thing was Uh, having
1: to carry around some like monster spotter that just monopolizes all the space in your pack was really really nice um i mean we were glassing bucks up and like checking out their rack geometry from almost two kilometers away yeah great glass Um, small little scope
0: small little scope compact and really good
1: Yeah, it's like smaller than an Algene and it's up to 33 power all optics start to lose some of their clarity at the top end but up to like 30x that thing was really great so that was awesome um my other hero is uh the uh hammer hunter bullets that we were shooting Mm. um (laughs) i really i can't wait to see how that video turns out because we haven't seen the the final product but Um, for anybody watching, if you've seen Animal House, you know how Niedermeyer's horse is in the office and it just like keels over and dies? Well, (laughs) pretty sure we have two Niedermeyer's horses within like 30 seconds of each other on video. And vapor trays. Seemed to be astonishingly effective. I kind of lost my buck in the recoil impulse of my rifle, uh, so I didn't really see what happened. But I immediately like got off i said hunter get on the pack shoot that thing yeah. <laughs> He put a great shot on it and like i mean it was i mean you'll hear me in the uh in the audio from that it was just immediately obvious that that thing was dead yeah he's he down <laughs> yeah. i was like oh oh that one's done <laughs> yeah and you could so see the vapor really
0: trails good. of our bullets like and hit the oh deer. man it's i like- mean
1: yeah, I was I was talking with a few of my buddies. It looks like the vapor trails from the sniper rifle in the video game Halo, like the exaggerated, <laughs> yeah. graphically generated vapor trails. It's yeah. like I was I was kind of watching, and I had this weird like tenth of a second moment, whatever it is, between when the bullet left your rifle and impact. Where I was like, "What is that actually?" So I've I've spotted for many thousands of rifle rounds going downrange my day, and I've never seen something like that. That was happen
0: awesome
1: going towards it. So it was actually like visually apparent enough that it was like useful to see where the impact was yeah so that was really cool uh hammer bullets steve in montana those things were easy to do load development for um yeah. i loaded all of those and uh super easy load development great terminal performance um great so shout out to steve um yeah gotta 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 throw my zero on there i would be remiss not oh to, yeah i mentioned this in a rock slide post um, and actually a few other guys have chimed in on that one since really? I posted that like a day ago saying the exact same thing. Mm. So my Saloa mountain trainer mids, they are is like flagship Gore-Tex line of mids and mine were waterproof for long enough to bait me into thinking that that would last. So mm. the waterproofing was great when I tested them out in Virginia. They fit like a glove. They're awesome. Awesome boots. Waterproofing started degrading down to being 0% waterproof after about 10 miles. They, by the end of the trip, they were totally soaked. And if I walked through about 10 feet of wet grass, wearing full waterproof Gore-Tex gaiters, by the way, um, they would just be soaked enough that yeah. I could pour water out of them. So, I mean, that's a really, really big yeah. piece of the mental picture is when you're getting up at 6 a.m. and it's 35 degrees, just consider the difference between putting on like a sopping wet, thoroughly mm-hmm. soaked through pair of boots and the difference of between that and getting a nice warm pair of dry boots that you've taken really good care of to keep dry. Yeah. Um, yeah it was a factor.
0: It. So it was a factor. Ned was, he he's not a complainer and he's tough, but I could tell it was like, I mean, anybody with soaking wet, cold boots for a week, it's definitely going to wear on you. There's, there's, good thing he's tough because a lesser men might not have been able to handle as well as he did, but yeah, avoid those.
1: I mean, it's just not possible to stay warm if your feet are 35 degrees and soaked. Like, yeah. there, it doesn't matter how many clothes you have on, you are going sure. to be cold, especially if it's blowing, which it was the whole time we were there. So yeah. anyway, just test test your uh, gear. I personally had a really bad experience with that. Actually, for the second time, that's a replacement pair of boots for one that did the exact same thing. Yeah. So I'm going to take some of the uh, blame for that because I probably should have just gotten a new pair of boots after <laughs> I experienced the first failure. But suffice it to say, that's the last time I go into the field with those. Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, I hear you, man. Um, all right. Well, man, I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. Obviously you want really good rain gear. Um, I also made use of my puffies top and bottoms on this trip, uh, around camp. And then one night when I stayed out late in the wind. Um, so yeah, even in August in Alaska, I recommend bringing puffies. Um, Another just quick one that came to mind, um, I got a, uh, on camo fire, just a black Ovis uh, Merino hoodie, like a 300 or 250 gram Merino hoodie that was like a really good pickup. I got it for like, I think 65 bucks, um, which is compared to like, you know, usually like the same product from a KU is going to run like 120, 130, maybe more, but that was a really good pickup. Um, so black Ovis has some, has some good stuff. Anyway, if you guys have any more questions about gear or logistics uh, or anything about this hunt, just drop me a line. I'd be happy to answer uh, anything you got, Uh, but I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. Any final thoughts, Ned?
1: Uh, Yeah, man. I mean, just to kind of put a cap on things, um, the early season blacktail hunt on Kodiak is a really cool hunt. Like Hunter said, it's not for everybody. It's honestly probably a more difficult way to hunt black tailed deer and you know if you're coming from the lower 48 you do have to definitely consider the amount logistically that's going to cost you to go and shoot a deer um you know the the transporters into the backcountry are not cheap and it's not an easy hunt that time of year you know like you see some of these shows i remember there's one meat eater episode where those guys get weathered in and don't oh, yeah. end up being able to get any um so it's definitely not a guaranteed hunt it's tough it's not cheap Um, but it is a really, really cool experience if you're willing to work for it and know that there are going to be a lot of variables that you have to contend with. Um, i love doing it. Uh, like I said, that might be because I'm kind of young and dumb and love punishment, but, uh, it's, it's honestly been a really cool experience. One of my favorite Alaskan hunts. And, uh, if you're willing to work for it and just know all of those variables that are associated with doing this, then it can be a really great experience.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an experience, and um, you know, if 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 it's only about the kill shot for you, uh, if it's only about killing a huge animal or multiple animals or um, you know the species, you know, you might want to think about a different hunt. Honestly, Um, like I said, Ned said. You know they're very cool animals, but is a lot of logistics and cost um, to kill some deer. And I'm not trying to downplay the hunt at all. It was amazing, but all I'm trying to say is it's an experience. You need to go into it like an experience and enjoy every part of the experience. Because um, at the end of the day, you know I kill multiple deer every year. Um, this deer probably it may not be the biggest deer I shoot all year, but the experience of flying in and camping by that beautiful alpine lake and working really hard and just everything about it. Um, you know, I get really wrapped up in the beginning part of the trip in the pressure of filling the tag, getting it on camera, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of had this come to Jesus moment in the middle of the trip. Where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy this. Even if I don't, because the worst thing you can do is come out of the hunt, not killing something and, and not enjoying this trip you've been planning for and paying for, for a long time. So go into it with an open mind um, and just enjoy every part of the immersive experience of being out there in this wild place where, I mean, it's just wild. It's, uh, there's there's nothing man-made anywhere around you. You are really, really in the wilderness. Um, so yeah, um, I, I'd recommend it again. Yeah, not for everybody, but uh, it's very doable and a very cool experience. So again, if you have any questions about it, you want to hear more, please drop me a line. Also be on the lookout, subscribe to the YouTube channel because, um, the film is going to be epic. I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to release it, but, uh, definitely be some really cool content out of this. Um, cause I was, as Ned will say, I was dragging multiple cameras around the entire time. I was working really hard to get a lot of good footage and, um, I know I got some good stuff. So I'm looking forward to putting that together for you guys. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening and, uh, we'll see you guys in the next one. Thanks again for listening to the Hunter's Quest podcast and make sure you stay up to date on social media at the Hunter's Quest on Instagram and the Hunter's Quest podcast on Facebook. And we'll have all kinds of photos and videos from my day to day, as well as stuff from the awesome guests we're having on here. As always, I'm more than happy to connect with you guys. If you have questions about hunting or spiritual stuff or gear fitness Whatever, just drop me a line in my DMs, or you can email me at hunter at thisishuntersquest.com. If you like what you're hearing, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating and a review. That's really helpful, and don't forget to share with your friends. So stay tuned, lots of cool stuff in the works, and I'm really excited to continue this quest together.